Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and you can see all things behind the scenes from us at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram. It would be fantastic to see you there. However, to our episode today, and as we are now in the second week of December, it can only mean one thing. It's awards season here at Sasta, and so today will be the most downloaded episode of 2018 in the seven-day period after its release. So who's it going to be? Drumroll, please. Well, I'm sure it comes as no surprise to many of us, but Claire Hughes-Johnson, COO at Stripe, the new standard in online payments that handled billions of dollars of business every year for forward-thinking businesses around the world. And to date, Stripe have raised over $680 million in funding from some of the very best in the business, including Sequoia, Founders Fund, General Catalyst, Thrive, Capital G, Kleiner Perkins, and Tiger Global, just to name a few. As for Claire, prior to Stripe, she spent over 10 years at Google in a range of different roles, from VP of Google's self-driving car division, to VP of Global Online Sales, to VP of Google Offers. At Stripe, Claire has helped take Stripe Global in February 2016 with the launch of Atlas, a toolkit that enables any business anywhere in the world to incorporate in the United States. And if that wasn't enough, Claire is also a board member at Hallmark Cards. But before we move into the show today, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS companies that adopt company-wide goal setting then execute aligned SaaS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing, and customer success grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news for you. Zocri allows you to track all your metrics, create goals, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri free in Q1 and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zocri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com, to sign up now. And speaking of being smart with your operations, if you regularly listen to podcasts, you've heard of Betterment, the smart way to manage your money. They use cutting-edge technology to build you a personalized portfolio and provide you with fiduciary financial advice for one low transparent fee. But did you know that they can also provide your company with a 401k plan? Well, we all know that 401k plans and choosing them for your company can be a pretty time-consuming and confusing process. Well, with Betterment, it doesn't have to be. Betterment for Business is a turnkey 401k solution that offers ease of use, personalized financial advice, and very competitive pricing. And that's why the likes of Compass, Casper, and Harry's are just some of the companies that use Betterment's 401k to help further their employees' financial wellness. And you can learn more today at betterment.com slash Sasta. That's betterment.com slash Sasta. And finally, fundamentally, as a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations. It could be hiring execs. It could be developing managers, retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. It helps companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive that offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. However, I'm now thrilled to hand over to Claire Hughes-Johnson, COO at Stripe, and also the most downloaded episode of 2018. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. 
Claire, it's a huge, huge honour to have you on the show today. I've been a big, big fan ever since reading your fantastic chapter in Eli Gill's High Growth Handbook. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Harry. Not at all, but I'd love to kick off today with a little bit about you. So tell me, Claire, how did you come to make your way into the wonderful world of technology, first with Google and now as COO of Stripe? I think it was just a little bit about a career journey that led me to find where I thought impact was happening in the world. And I started out thinking it was going to be more about government and politics and law and came to the realization that technology was really what was bringing about the major changes that we see in terms of access to information and I hope with Stripe uh, access to commerce capabilities for people who don't still have them today which is sort of shocking and I was looking for that kind of impact in my career found Google through doing that introspection and through some great friends who I went to business school with and then Stripe was really about what would the next chapter be in terms of my personal journey, but also my ability to help build something that I think is going to be very important if we do things right. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you on the importance there. What I have the opportunity, though, what are the parallels? You mentioned your time at Google there. What are the parallels from your time at Google with what you're doing today at Stripe? Well, early Google and Stripe have a lot in common in terms of very ambitious vision and long-term thinking about solving pretty serious technical challenges, but also in the case of Google, I think it was a lot about access to information and the products around that. In the case of Stripe, it's really about commerce infrastructure and economic opportunity and increasing the GDP of the internet. But both companies, very ambitious founders and mission, incredibly smart people. The talent and the really bottoms-up interest in doing the right thing and building the best thing that we could. There are some parallels. I think there's also some differences, though, in that, well, first of all, Google is more about it being a consumer company and building a web product that gained a lot of consumer usage and then the monetization piece was really on the side of that and I think what I love about Stripe is we're all really working on the same thing it's very interconnected and it's really about business building and then also Patrick and John are incredibly singular founders just really high IQ incredible ambition and vision but also a lot of EQ and a lot of focus on building the best organization and building a company for the long term I think Google took more time to get to the opinions on what it was going to take to build a truly great company and I'm thrilled to be part of the early thinking at Stripe on that. No, absolutely and I think that's kind of very clear in the incredible evolution of Stripe but I would love to structure the conversation today with a top-down approach. So starting with the decision-making framework you outline in Eli Gill's new book The High Growth Handbook then moving to your role as COO in, in really implementing that strategy and framework and then to the people and the team that execute it. Does that work well for you Claire? Of course. Okay so starting on the framework I loved your interview as I said with Elad and in the interview you said that you spent a lot of time thinking about the founding documents as you called them I'd love to start with what are these founding documents and what's crucial for them to contain yeah I mean I think they can be different for different companies and organizations but to me it really is about the fact that once you get beyond a certain number you can't have everybody in the room participating and making all the decisions and understanding the underlying principles by which you want to drive your product and drive your company and so the founding documents can look like some 
long-term goals. So here's our mission. And then what are we trying to accomplish over the next three to five to 10 years and something that's memorable and repeatable to candidates and to people in the organization. And then a value structure or what we call operating principles of Stripe, sort of the why, right? And then the how. How do we want to work together? What's going to matter as we scale? And you want something that can be a touchstone for people to learn and learn from one another as opposed to having to recreate that in every room. And as you get more and more people in a company, you're not going to fit everybody in one room. And it's better to start early declaring what you're about. I think you can do it too early, though, where you're still figuring yourself out. And so I think the trick is to start to, it's almost like a person. You want to build self-awareness and then you want to start to realize, okay, that means the way I do things is this. And I think companies are the same. You want to work on your product market fit, build company awareness of how you want to do things, why you exist, what's motivating about that to the people who work there, and then document it so it can be shared and repeated and understood in such a way that you can scale more quickly, frankly. Because if you're spending all the time reteaching each other, you are not going to be moving quickly. Can I ask, when is that inflection point in kind of realizing self-awareness and kind of discovering self-awareness and then moving into kind of the much more structural phases of kind of foundational documents, as we mentioned with the founding documents? I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on that. And I definitely am privileged enough to work with some early stage companies and founders, especially when I was at Google working on AdWords, but more so at Stripe. And I would say that an earlier company is really the founders and the team they've assembled to take an idea into some form of reality and to test it, right? And to see if it has traction. A lot of your early work is really existential and it's less about self-awareness and who do we want to be as we scale and more about, is this idea valid and can we build and realize it? And I think it feels like a small team and less like an organization and that's perfectly right. But when you get, I think the combination to me of getting some traction with the product or the idea and scaling the number of people involved, say beyond those who can comfortably sit in a meeting room and make a decision together and and review the principles organically is when you want to be looking. That could be 30 people. It could be 50. It also seems to occur to founders as something they really need, in my experience, when they start hiring leaders. But I think that would probably be a little too late, almost, to start forming your opinions. Because once you have the mission and the vision and then the principles by which you want to operate, you can start to use those to drive how do we make decisions who do we need to realize this vision and it creates more of a decision making framework that's self reinforcing that the organization can deliver on and a new leader would really benefit I think from coming into an environment where more of that is figured out Can I ask a question that's off schedule which is is it kind of the structure that allows you to find a better spec for that leader that you're hiring or is it a case of that leader that comes in really defines the structure which way around do you think it is? Again, I think it's really not binary that way. The right leadership hire, especially when you're a younger company, is definitely part of helping to shape, okay, what are we going to do to realize this thing? But you need to know what you're trying to do. I think the thing that's hard when you're hiring leaders, especially when you're newer, is you need to know what capabilities you want to bring in the door. There's a culture fit element, so you need to understand how you want to operate, what are your principles, what are your values, and then there's a capabilities, which is what do we want to build? What's our three to five year long-term plan? What does it look 
like? And if we're going to build that, what do we have today in-house and what do we not have? What experience do we need to go out and seek? You find that experience, you find that person who's aligned with the operating principles, and then of course they're going to come in and have an impact. And that's why you do want to be very careful with leadership hiring because people take cues from the leaders in the company and they will shape things. And if they're the right hire, it'll be for the positive. Absolutely. I mean, speaking of kind of shaping things and the leaders themselves at these companies, I'm really interested. How do you make decisions using the founding documents? And can you maybe give some examples from Stripe and your experiences? I think that there are different kinds of decision-making frameworks that you might end up using. One that we use at Stripe, which is less about the founding documents, is more about, look, is this an irreversible or trapdoor decision and how high impact is it? And then we have some operating principles around being rigorous. And we also have an operating principle around moving with urgency. And when you're dealing with something that's a trapdoor decision and that's extremely high impact, you're going to bring the rigor part of how you do things. You know, maybe that's a big pricing change you're making or a launch in a new part of the world. And then if you're working on something that is pretty reversible and that's lower impact, you want to empower more people to act on it quickly. You need to get that continuum right between people feeling empowered and moving quickly versus understanding when they are taking an action that is very meaningful. And I think we use that framework a lot internally. In terms of the founding documents, it's more about if you read our 2018 plan and we write a narrative for the year, what do we want to be true by the end of the year? And if you read it and then you read our long-term goals document, would they line up? Is the narrative for 2018 in line with what we're saying that we want to do in terms of arming the upstarts or increasing globalization of commerce? And the answer is yes, then great. We're on the right track with our high-level plans. And then we make them more detailed. And then, of course, there's decisions that get tricky in the moment, in tactical moments. And what I do like is when you hear a team discussing something and one of them brings up an operating principle and says, well, is this really users first, right? Is this the right action to take right now for the set of users that are going to be impacted? And it's a powerful tool, I would say, more for honing the decision than making the decision. I'm so intrigued you said about moving with urgency there. I had a guest on the show that said the other day, a good decision made today is better than a perfect decision made tomorrow. How do you think about that? Is that something that you would agree with or would you maybe have a different perspective? I tend to agree with that, though I will say that I've learned a lot working with Patrick and John, um, who both care a lot about, okay, what are the various paths that this action could take? We talk a lot about how do we preserve optionality? How do we avoid having a lot of our decisions be trapdoor decisions? And it's been actually incredibly rich experience for me to play out, like, what are the things we could do that make sure we don't end up in a corner? Because how the world is going to evolve, let alone Stripe evolve, is not a predictable thing. But I, I think my spin on it would be less about make the good decision today and like don't let perfect be the enemy of the good is a very popular phrase in my life. But what people really need is confidence and stability from leaders and from companies. And I think a lot of people think making a decision provides confidence and stability, but it doesn't have to be just a decision. It just has to be like, look, this is the course of action we're taking right now. We're not sure if it's exactly right and we will probably have to change it, but we got this and we're fine and we're going to keep moving forward. And so I would watch out for a world where someone's very rapidly making lots of decisions, but really it's about the stability that you provide to the organization that matters. I love that focus on confidence and stability. I do want to move one layer down from kind of 
the founding documents and the structure and the decision-making process to the CEO that really helps to implement it. Starting from the ground up, seeing the success of incredible individuals such as yourself, many founders I speak to want that amazing COO. Super tough question, so I apologize for asking it, but from your perspective, how do you define a truly special CEO and what does that truly great look like? Well, that completely depends on you and your company. So I think that in most examples when people come and tell me they want to hire a COO, it's not clear that they need one. And I think we should push against what seems like a solution, sometimes in search of a problem. And really, what are you trying to do with the company? My first conversation with Patrick was about where do they have needs? What are the scaling challenges? What experience do they want to bring in the door? I think at that moment, there was a lot of discussion between maybe we just need you know, a head of sales, a revenue leader, and not a COO. And I think you really need to have a position on what problem, what's the burning platform that this role might solve. And if you bring someone in too early without a clarity of what needs to be done, what's the job to be done, I think it could actually be quite frustrating for the people involved. And then what is the perfect? The perfect person is when you understand them. Again, back to self-awareness. No one's perfect. I certainly have areas I'm better equipped to lead than others. And one of the things I really appreciated about my process at Stripe was Patrick and John took the time to get to know me and talk about, well, what would make sense in the role for you? What does Stripe need? What are you going to add value at? And how can we shape the position so it gives us some additional scale leverage, which is really what the company needed at the time? And I'm perfectly happy to be adaptable. I mean, I think the thing that you probably are looking for in a COO is either someone who is very strictly operational, right? Someone who's scaling. If you have a very heavy operational product or service, you're going to want someone who has that depth or someone who's, I kind of don't love these words, but a general athlete, right? I mean, for me, I know a little about a lot of things. And so I can scale a recruiting team and a sales team and a marketing team and, and user operations I actually know pretty deeply. But like you have to understand this person is basically getting functions off the ground and then probably they're graduating. In my opinion, the COO role is often probably a temporary role until you get the right structure at the right size and scale for the business. And that takes certainly takes longer than I think, but I would avoid the trap of, I think I need a COO and be more detailed and specific about what do you think you need and does that end up equaling, I need a COO or could it in fact be some very smart leadership hires that are more functionally deep. Well, I mean, on the general athlete element, I'm clearly not a COO. Uh, athlete is not part of any part of my personality, sadly. But uh, I would love to ask, you mentioned kind of your joining Stripe and kind of how you talked about kind of formulating that role with Patrick and John. I'm super interested. What was it about that kind of role formulation that really drew you to Stripe? Well, the first thing is really Patrick and John themselves. So for me, it was one, the founders, because young companies really reflect their founders and you have to be in a position where you think, hey, this is a group of people who are going to work very well together. So one is the founders and two is what's the company trying to do, right? What matters is the vision and what the product that you're building. And for me, what matters is could it be meaningful? Is it actually important? Too often, I think we end up in a technology sort of story that's really just about monetization or an advertising driven business model. And that became less and less interesting to me over my career at Google. And what was more interesting is really building infrastructure, solving the unsolved problems. If you think about Google attacking search and maybe Facebook or Twitter connecting people socially, the fact that less than 5% of consumer spending is online, that commerce is not really a solved problem for the internet, is sort of shocking because it's really the way the future is going to work, right? And I think having that 
conversation and thinking about what it could mean for me. I mean, my early career was in government, right? It's about job creation. It's about economic access and opportunity. And I got very excited about the means to the end of the mission of Stripe to increase the GDP of the internet is ideally, is in my view, probably going to increase the GDPs of the countries involved, period. And that everybody should have equal access. If you, re- if you think the internet is a force for good, then solving the commerce challenge is going to be an incredibly multiplicative force for good. So it was the mission, the founders, the mission, and the, the potential, obviously a lot of a lot to be built. And then the final thing was, yes, the role. Like, what would I learn? What would I be doing differently than I had in my previous roles? And where would I have an impact? Like, I had to believe we're matching up the right needs of the company to my skills, abilities, and potential growth path. And that was many conversations to discern that and think about where what would be my priorities when I started? How could I add value? And then believing that we were the right group of people to evolve that as the company evolved. Anything you join that's early enough, the only thing that's going to be true is change. So you have to have a group of people who are ready to ad- evolve and adapt together. And at Stripe, we like to sometimes move things around amongst leaders and portfolio shift a little bit. And I think that's been very successful for Facebook as well. It's really important that you have people who are confident and changing up what they're focused on, but also really excited as leaders to add the value that's needed in the moment. You mentioned the number one there before we move on to the team. You mentioned the number one there being the founders. I do have to ask, in terms of the founder to COO relationship, how do you think about that interplay and what that optimal relationship really looks like? I think it's really a relationship of mutual respect. The thing that Patrick and John are, they're both incredibly ambitious, visionary, creative, and a lot of the interplay between us is what am I learning from them and what could I possibly offer in return? What I love about them is they're both quite opinionated but collaborative. And I, I think that's pretty rare to find. Whereas I think I can influence and have and be part of a decision and a conversation with them. But I understand where they're coming from and they're comfortable if I take a different position, but that we collectively believe we're going to get to a better place. There's just a respect there. And I worry that a lot of founders feel like they've got to own all all the vision and have all the answers when really it's about what are the best ideas we have amongst us and what do we think is going to move the organization forward and the product forward. But it's that exchange. And and in my experience, Patrick and I talk a lot about this. We think quite differently, actually. We're very complimentary about various problem spaces, but we have a pretty strong alignment of core values as sort of humans and believing how you approach something we have in common. And if you can find that, I think it can be quite powerful, which is complementary views, complementary experiences, but some aligned true north of of sort of how you want to be in the world. And that's been, I think, pretty powerful for us and for Stripe. No, I I love the description of the interplay there. You mentioned kind of moving the company forward and moving the product forward. I do want to touch on one final element before the quick fire, which is the team itself. Uh, When you joined Stripe, you had 165 people. Today, it sits at over 1,100. So I'd love to hear, how do you think about what you've done right to effectively recruit at such scale and how you hire hundreds so effectively every year. I was just on the phone with one of our recruiting leaders who was telling 
telling me I need to prepare the organization for the next wave of growth because she said they're worried they're not going to be able to hire the hundreds uh, for next year. So it is a constant, you know, you have to sort of step function up your capabilities when you're thinking about things like adding people, however, not compromised, right? Not compromised on the quality of the people you bring in, the potential impact they could have. It's not a battle you win once. You are constantly vigilant. For me, it started with really bringing in absolutely the best recruiting team and Stripe as a company, particularly our engineering team, I will give them the most kudos. Everybody plays a role in recruiting. It is not someone's job on the margin. It is critical to our success that everyone be involved in referring candidates, sourcing, meeting. A lot of what I do is spend time with prospective candidates, talking to them, convincing them this may be a great opportunity, really a sales role for all of us. But for our recruiters, from day one, when we talk about the metrics and the measurement of how we do, it is quality above quantity. So there have been times where we haven't hired everybody that we had on the list, and we're actually quite happy about that because there's a lot of trust in that team to make sure that we're hiring the best people. And one of my favorite things is to go and do a hiring committee meeting at Stripe, and the recruiter tends to facilitate that conversation, and they are often the person in the room who says, you know, when I read through all this feedback, let me summarize it for you. I'm concerned that this person doesn't seem like the right fit, or people are kind of weakly supportive. And that is the biggest win of all, which is the people who really own that process, owning the outcome, the results. I think too often we focus on some metric, which is how many people have you got in the seats. You really need to be focusing on, are they the right people? And are they going to be successful and engaged and add value? And so I'm pretty proud of that. And that we, we have not given up and we will not give up. We will not sacrifice that. But you still have to scale it, right? Which means how do you bring in more of that recruiting talent? How do you inculcate them successfully? And for us now, it's in countries around the world. And I think it relies on that team being quite strong and really representative of Stripe effectively. And we're quite lucky that, you know, we've retained a lot of the early founders of that effort. And that makes a huge difference, especially for a function that is as critical as recruiting. Absolutely. I do have I do have one final question before we move into the quick fire, which is always a big thought for me. And it's when hiring external candidates, how do you prevent maybe internal discontent from individuals that maybe felt they were ready for the position? How do you think about managing that? Yeah, I think there's sort of are organizations scaling well. And then there are is the question sometimes is the individual scaling well. And the thing that's hard as you get bigger and you're successful. So it's a, one of the good problems to have is that people who had roles that were quite broad, that covered incredible ground, need to become more specialized because the stakes are so much higher and the complexity is so much higher. So a lot of the conversation you have to be having internally is, yes, you led functions X, Y, and Z. And guess what? Now Z is responsible for X percent of our revenue and needs someone to focus. And I think most people understand that intellectually, but it's still emotionally challenging when you say, look, there's part of this that needs to be led by a new person or led differently. We have a, it's not really a policy, but I think what we do well at Stripe is we're very open when we're hiring externally for critical roles or leadership roles. We let the teams know, we explain why, we explain the type of person we're looking for, and we involve them in the decision. And yeah, it's hard, but it gives them a chance to sort of get comfortable with, okay, this is where we're headed. And if someone 
anyone has a concern, I mean, my number one job is to be there listening and helping them understand the context on why we might have made a change. But I'm really proud to say I think a lot of people recognize there's, there's a lot of work to be done at the company, and they recognize that it, it's a different kind of learning path for them, and it, it's okay to specialize. It's actually the way that success takes form. No, I couldn't agree with you more there in terms of the need for specialization. I do want to dive into my favorite element of any interview being the quick fire round. So Claire's 60 seconds faster. Are you ready? It's about 60 seconds per statement. How does that sound? I'm going to do my very best. Okay, so what motto or quote do you most frequently revert back to? Probably Eleanor Roosevelt's do the thing you think you cannot do. Love it. What's the most challenging element of your role with Stripe today? That I wish I could bend the time-space continuum uh, because <laughs> that I need to spend more time on, yet it does not seem flexible. Tell me a moment in your life, Claire, that served as an inflection point and really changed the way you think. I was torn on this one. I think one is professional and in my early career I worked in politics and I saw people's entire careers get pretty wrecked by one event, which is losing a campaign. And when you think about how do you get yourself in a position that you are an individual or tied to an individual so much so that their fate determines yours. And that always makes me think when I think about managing my career, which is not tied to one particular person. I'm more about a cause or a mission. The other is more personal, which is I think when you're very early career and you're very ambitious, it's quite easy to put a lot of your life behind your work. And when I worked at Google and I was on the rise in in a position, I almost canceled on going to see my father for a surprise 75th birthday celebration, but I made it work. I took a red eye. I figured it out. And a month later, he died suddenly of a heart attack. And if you're not supporting people and trying to make the best decisions for everything in their life, even when their career is on fire, then you're probably doing them a disservice. And I think I was, as a young manager, I was not as supportive of people's lives, the important things. And I think, what if I had not gone to that birthday celebration? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so sorry to hear that. What are your strengths and weaknesses, Claire? Penultimate question. Well, I think I already shared, which is I can do a lot of different things. I'm pretty versatile, (laughs) very adaptable, but I worry that the weakness is I don't make the space or the time to really go deep. It's easy to get distracted when you're trying to cover so much ground. And I value the people around me who make me stop and think. I'm also pretty comfortable communicating and communicating a lot. And sometimes (laughs) the flip side of that is you got to listen and you got to be quiet. And I get impatient and I just talk. And then the final question, what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Now, this can be the beginning of your career. This could be the beginning of your time at Google or your time at Stripe. But what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of dot, dot, dot? I've been thinking about this one. Uh, I'm really someone who, who lives in the present a lot. I think the thing that I wish I knew is actually related to the previous question, which is often people's great strengths are also a source of weakness. And if you can figure out how to mitigate that, you are going to be better off. The other thing I wish I knew is the things that I'm truly very good at are like breathing to me. They don't feel very special. And I think a lot of humans walk around not understanding their most special abilities because it just seems so obvious to them. And then if you can seek feedback and surround yourself with people who you share sort of mutual observations, like, do you realize that you have these insights that I just don't think anyone has? It's really powerful because, I mean, I'm a believer in learning and growing, but understand your own foundation and you will be that much stronger. Claire, it's been such a pleasure.
pleasure to have you on the show today. As I said, I've been a huge, huge admirer for a long time, and especially after Elad's incredible chats with you. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Harry. It was a pleasure. I mean, such a special guest, and really no wonder why it was the most downloaded episode of 2018. I want to say huge thank you to Claire for giving up her time today to be on the show, and to Hemond, Elad, and Sasha for making it such a special show with such brilliant questions. I really do appreciate that. But before we leave you today, there's no argument from me on this. SaaS companies that adopt company-wide goal-setting then execute aligned SaaS growth initiatives in areas like sales, marketing, and customer success grow faster. And let's be honest, we all know that using spreadsheets to manage this is far from optimal. Well, I've got good news for you. Zocri allows you to track all your metrics, create goals, and align and optimize your team's activities, creating a smarter and more powerful SaaS growth engine. And if you sign up for a trial today, you can try Zocri free in Q1 and see its positive impact on metrics like MQLs, SQLs, MRR, and churn. So the most important thing you might do today to help your SaaS business grow is go to Zocri.com, that's Z-O-K-R-I.com, to sign up now. And speaking of being smart with your operations, if you regularly listen to podcasts, you've heard of Betterment, the smart way to manage your money. They use cutting-edge technology to build you a personalized portfolio and provide you with fiduciary financial advice for one low transparent fee. But did you know that they can also provide your company with a 401k plan? Well, we all know that 401k plans and choosing them for your company can be a pretty time-consuming and confusing process. Well, with Betterment, it doesn't have to be. Betterment for Business is a turnkey 401k solution that offers ease of use, personalized financial advice, and very competitive pricing. And that's why the likes of Compass, Casper, and Harry's are just some of the companies that use Betterment's 401k to help further their employees' financial wellness. And you can learn more today at betterment.com slash Saster. That's betterment.com slash Saster. And finally, fundamentally, as a founder or operator, your most important job is people operations. It could be hiring execs. It could be developing managers, retaining that top talent. And that's why you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. It helps companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive that offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E.com forward slash Saster, build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. As always, I so appreciate your support and I can't wait to bring you a very special episode next week with Guy Pajani, founder and CEO at Sneak.